Okay, well, good morning, uh, and welcome to the latest edition of Getting There, eSchool News Conversations with Tech Directors talking about their responses to the COVID-19 pandemic. My name is Kevin Hogan. Uh, I am the, uh, the editor of this particular section, and with me today is a good old friend, Todd, Todd Duggan uh, from Illinois. Todd, welcome. Hi, Kevin. Thanks for having me. And you are in uh, Bunker Hill in, in Southern Illinois, am I right? Yes, yeah, Bunker Hill, Illinois. It is a uh, rural community just outside of, uh, just north of the Metro East area, uh, the kind of Illinois side of the St. Louis uh, suburb area. Uh, we're uh, in McCoupin County, which is a rural remote district. Uh, I think we're like 62% poverty, um, 600 kids, pre-K through 12, so. Yeah, so in, I know in, in years past, uh, the ideas of both digital equity as a, as, a, as a concept, but also the particulars of internet connectivity, just kind of the, the nuts and bolts of getting rural communities connected uh, to high-speed internet as something that we've always talked about. And uh, the issues have been, um, you know, always seen, but the concept seemed abstract, right? Seemed like a luxury. Right, right. And then COVID hits, and then all of a sudden, it's, it makes it all real, right? Talk about your experience of kind of going from that, that conceptual. Maybe it wasn't always a conceptual thing for you. It was, maybe it always was a reality for you. <laughs> well, I, I felt it was. I mean, first of all, I've always felt like um, the promise of technology, uh, all the digital tools out there, that has a, a huge key that is a huge key in providing um, a good 21st century education uh, it allows kids no matter where you're born no matter how far away you are from a metro area or any kind of a cultural experience the technology when it's used correctly can really elevate the learning experience uh, and enrich it for all kids um, it has the potential uh, to transform teaching I believe from offering uh, you know, what you would normally call just the bare standards of competency and technology when used correctly can actually provide like a gifted education for every single kid in America. Uh, we're a long ways from that. Um, too many districts I've seen, uh, even in this area, will just deploy a massive tons of devices and not really do anything with transforming the teaching and learning process. It's basically like they have this huge equity issue. They deploy 10,000 devices and now you've got digital equity, uh, digital inequity with 10,000 devices. Uh, and in fact, I would argue if the teaching doesn't change, you've made the equity issue worse uh, because now you're perpetuating it. Uh, people, I feel it becomes more glaring. It becomes way more glaring when you have, you know, kids in um, areas where they have affluent uh, budgets for robust curriculum, learning management systems, online tools and high quality targeted professional development. Um, you, you can see that in areas and then you can see other areas where kids are basically doing uh, flashcards or kill and drill games on a computer. It's no different than um, rich teaching with than flashcards. It's basically, you know, after two weeks, the novelty of the device wears off and you've got kids that are still doing low level, um, meaningless rote memory activities but they're doing it on a device. Right. Everybody's like, ooh, we're one-to-one. -one. Uh, that's not even, that's, not, that's like the first step of at least three. Right. And so 
the, the problem that I have encountered throughout my career as superintendent has been these rural areas that are spread out. Then you think, okay, this is the perfect district to transform teaching and learning with the internet. Then you have these connectivity problems. Um, you have areas where internet is unaffordable, and then you have areas in the outlying, like, you know, literally out in the timber where internet is not even, there's no fiber. The On the fiber, cable, yeah. Yeah, there's no cable, there's no uh, DSL even. Uh, it's all satellite, uh, which is okay, but you know how kids are with data. Uh, if I had satellite internet and it's like pay as you go, I guarantee you Annabelle, my daughter, would use a month's worth of data in one day. Uh, because she's very active online. She's not just a consumer, she's also a creator and a contributor. But she would be, she would consume a month's worth of data in one day, and then you have to pay more and more and more. Um, so the the problem with that is that there has not been, to my opinion, uh, any like incentives, I think, for companies to lay fiber in areas where you may pick up six customers. You know, like uh, in my previous district, we had uh, investigated fiber. And to run it from the nearest substation was $40,000 just to run the fiber to the town. Yeah. So if you've got this uh, strip of land in, you know, rural Macoupin County, you could spend forty to $80,000 running fiber and you would only pick up six customers a month. So what company, I mean, I'm, right. I, I don't run like a for-profit or anything, but it, you know, it's easy to see like, yeah, that's, that's not profitable. Right. And it was probably like that. I assume I wasn't alive back then, but I assume it was like that back in the, you know, the thirties when electricity was run to the rural South. Sure. Like why would we run all these miles and miles and miles of transmission lines to pick up one you know, possibly low income customer. Right. So um, that, that puts our kids at a, at a, at a big disadvantage when in theory, I, I mean, I believe this with my whole heart, the technology is, is the key to transforming. Yeah. Well, what's the, what's the state of your, your district now? I mean, or, you know, what was it? Did, did you have to, um, I mean, you, you went to a remote setup, I'm assuming starting in March. And how were you able, were you able to do that? I mean, what was the level of the success that you had uh, in order to do that? Well, uh, only having like 48 hours to transition. Uh, <laughs> you can imagine the success and I am going to shut my phone off because <laughs> I'm in some, uh, I'm in some group thread and I'm like, come on, take me off. <laughs> Okay, I think I got it shut off. Um, uh, so yeah, we, we had like basically 48 hours to transform, redefine teaching. And I will say this, we have a plan now for this next year. Yeah. Is, is a plan that I'm extremely proud of? No, I have never worked so hard in my life on something that I don't like sit behind and be like, ooh, look at this. I'd yeah. love to show something off. I'm not gonna show this off. It's, it's a plan that works. It's, yeah. it's as safe as possible anyway. Uh, but it's not something I'm proud of. If, you know, we always were told, I've always thought like, if I had a magic wand and I could just rebuild education in my vision, and this seemed like it was a chance. This is not what I would do. This is, <laughs> uh, there are so many other cool things when you would really transform teaching and learning for the 21st century. I mean, we got parts that are still stuck in the agrarian age, you know, the summer's off for the less than, 
2% of our kids that actually are involved in agriculture. We still have summers off. We still have bell schedules, which is like industrial revolution, like, you know, preparing kids to go work in the factories. Uh, no factories around here. No factories are coming back and hiring massive amounts of workers. And if they're certainly not going to be hiring a factory worker and saying, here's the job, keep it for 34 years and retire. Uh, those days are done, but yet our education model is stuck. So this, to me, COVID was like a chance to be like, ooh, let's break these chains. It's hard. Uh, it's hard. I would love to break these chains. But then when you start thinking like, okay, we're given a lot of creativity, a lot of leeway. That's exciting. Like, let's do this. And then here comes 120 pages of guidance from the Illinois State Board of Ed. Then here comes guidance from CDC. And then here comes remote learning recommendations. 103 pages of garbage. I will tell you, it was garbage. It was basically pedagogical theory. We, we've got so much pedagogical theory here. Like, trust me, I, we, our district could write a book on pedagogical theory. We don't need that from the state board. We need, like, tell us what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. Yeah. Uh, we can transform this thing and make it, make it uh, innovative, make it futuristic. I mean, even just making it modern would be nice. I, I'll, I'll stop at the futuristic. Just catching up to 2020 would be amazing. Uh, I mean, we're still saying like a 21st century learning, wouldn't that be cool? We're one fifth of the way through the 21st century. And right. we're talking about, wouldn't it be cool if we could get out of the late 1800 model? Yeah, it would be. Um, so, and, and uh, I, I mean, I'm, I'm digressing a little bit, but you can probably tell I get a little uh, uh, passionate because it's what I feel. Um, so in a rural district, having 48 hours to transform, we did it. We will say that we were in the process of going one-to-one -one in this district. We had not quite gotten there yet, but we were in the process. We had a good start. And I've always felt and cautioned people, don't buy K-12 laptops or one, one size fits all. You have to transform your teaching first. And once you figure out how to transform the teaching and learning, then you figure out what device do I need to accomplish this? Instead of, okay, well, every kid's got a Chromebook. Now what are you going to do? Well, yeah. I guess I'll use Google Classroom. Okay, that's okay. It's a step in the right direction, but that's not the transformation we want. Um, you know, you look at those models, that's the SAMR model. All, all you're doing there is supplementing, just supplementing, uh, substitution, maybe a little bit of augmentation, like, but there's no uh, redefining, um, you know, none of that ever yeah. accomplished when you just throw a device in a kid's hand and say, there you go. So um, we had, we were in the process of one-to-one -one, and then, um, 18% of our families do not have access to reliable broadband internet. So that was a huge problem. So uh, some of the things that we did, uh, obviously low budget being in a rural school district, we have a, a pretty low budget. So uh, some of the ideas that we were able to, to implement and just get through, uh, I think I thought they were pretty simple. I was myself, I was like, oh my God, that's a no brainer. But people were like, ooh, I saw that picture. Can I share this in a magazine? Uh, like this Illinois School Board Journal. So basically we took, uh, we called our internet service provider, uh, it's local, down the road, and because uh, remember during the COVID, they had banned all those E-rate rules yeah, on, yeah. on gifts. Uh, so basically our, our internet service provider who we use E-rate to pay for, we called them and said, listen, it's a pandemic here, you gotta help us out. Uh, so they did, they cranked up the internet to one gig to this office and uh, for free until, June 30th or whatever, they cranked it up to one gig. We bought an Aruba uh, outdoor access point, mounted it, and then took the passwords off. And then we sent out a massive text and said, hey, park in your car if you don't congregate 
and, and do your homework. And we had good success with that. Um, so you just get creative. I, I would argue, I've always argued that, um, you know, when you can give people tools to innovate. Uh, if you give people like uh, a massive budget and a massive amount of tools and you say, here you go, innovate to do something that works. Yeah, you can like, okay, it's not necessarily the best because you've got so much to work with and you typically want to use it all. Yeah. Somebody like three little Lego bricks and you say, you know, make, uh, make something that's solid. Okay, you've only got like three things. You have to innovate more. Right. Um, and I think that's why you know, pe people all oftentimes, and there are some really cool, great things in these large metro and suburban school districts that are innovative. But when you are in a district that with not so much resources, you have to innovate more. Yeah, yeah. Talk and about uh, talk a little bit about um, kind of what well, we, we would call professional development, right? But I mean, what was the response with with, with your faculty to that forty eight hours? I mean, how would, and you know, I, I keep talking to these districts, and, and as you said before, like the, the measure of success was just just to be in contact with the students was a measure of success and to yeah. offer some sort of social and emotional support, right? I mean, so I mean, that's yeah. kind of the baseline. Uh, and then other people said they had varying degrees of success of, of, of learning, but not many. No, um, do I think that um, uh, completely virtual education, public education is the way to go? No, none of our parents did either, none of our staff. In fact, I didn't talk to one person here that said this is better, uh, not one. Um, I did talk to several people that said we were happy with what happened. Uh, you did the best you could. Um, nobody said, oh my gosh, that's, let's do this forever. Um, you know, there may be some people that would say, yeah, I like that better because now I don't have to pay property taxes. You won't have a building to maintain. You don't have all these staff and you know, you always have those tax watchdogs that are looking for a way to lower property taxes. But uh, for the most part, nobody with a vested interest in the school said it was better this way. Do I think that we are missing the potential here to um, expand school? Yeah, that's what we need to do. We need to look at this as like school doesn't have to happen strictly within the, the bricks and mortar. Does it need to uh, sometimes? Yeah, yeah. You cannot have a six-year-old meet their teacher for the first time on a screen. Uh, there is absolutely, uh, I mean, think about it. Would you, we, well, we all know what motivates kids, right? Intrinsically motivating kids is that number one thing, and research has proven this over and over and over, grades don't motivate. Punishment does not motivate. Nothing motivates a kid like, well, a couple things, natural curiosity and, you know, that you have when you're five. And that's when those little kids ask you like 6,000 questions a day when they're younger. Uh, you know, like, why is the sky blue? Why does gasoline smell like that? Uh, in these questions that like as a parent, it drives you nuts, right? <laughs> right. That natural curiosity that we foster and foster and, and you know, it goes away the longer by the time they would, I would argue fourth and fifth grade, you see it disappear. And then you see the compliance model kick in and then the love for learning. And I would even argue that's where you see your first high school dropout. You can see it. Uh, learning is not fun anymore. It's not motivated. But the other piece to that is that relationship with that human relationship with that teacher. Um, I would do something, I'm more motivated to do something given 110%. If I knew like on this interview, like I respect you a ton and I do not want to let you down. So um, 
if I showed up to this interview and was like totally unprepared and like, uh, you know, half asleep and late, I wouldn't do that because it would tear me up because I like, I let Kevin down and I think the world of him. And that's what our young kids do with their teachers. They, the, the biggest thing is if that respect is there two ways, they don't want to let their teacher down and some voice or face on a screen is, isn't going to do it. Yeah. But the options are there. Like there has to be some kind of, uh, um, there we're missing a huge potential when we can't say like we don't need to be in a seat for 5.5 hours a day and count that as an attendance day. Yeah. Um, you know, and, uh, a lot of it too, uh, we saw during the remote learning was, um, you know, the, the, the districts that said they had success because they had like 90% of the kids complete their assignments. I don't call that a success. I call that compliance. Like, yeah, they completed work. So, Throughout the pandemic, um, I had uh, argued, not argued, but like made the case over and over and over that um, whatever we offer connected students, we offer a similar one to unconnected students. And here's where we're going to measure learning. We are not measuring learning by test scores or um, work done. That was the thing. It was the work done. For some reason, there was this uh, connection between and I don't know how it got there. Maybe it was just this rigid structure of public education over the last couple hundred years. But it was like, uh, how did the learning go for your class? Well, I had all my kids. I'm only missing eight assignments. So I did amazing. Well, that's work completed. To me, I mean, what, what means work completed equals learning? Right. I would challenge that. I would love to challenge that. I would love to see somebody say, here's empirical data that says completing work does not equal learning. Right, right. So uh, that's, that's one example. Give me a few other things that, um, you know, looking forward that you could pull from this experience and apply to that perfect school scenario. So perfect school scenario is, um, you know, I'm a huge supporter of like STEM, STEAM, hands-on, uh, problem-based learning, project-based learning, all of those things have the potential. Those are experiences, right? Um, those are moments that like mean so much. I, we probably all have those in our past elementary career when we were kids. We had that one project that we still remember from grade school. Um, and I don't know how it happened. I, I don't, I look back at my teacher and I don't think she was I mean, she would spank you for sharpening your pencil too much. So she wasn't a cutting edge innovator, but it, it was probably dumb luck. But like, I still remember these experiences of like uh, some project I did on FDR. I don't know why it still sticks with me in fourth grade, but it does. Uh, but it was very, very meaningful because it was a true experience. I ended up going to the public library. I ended up talking to my grandpa who worked for the CCC, the Civilian Conservation Corps. So it was like this, it meant something to me. You know, it wasn't like abstract wrote stuff in a book and memorizing dates and stuff. Uh, it was actually, it meant something to me because I had to go out and it was outside of school. I went to the library, I went to visit my grandpa and I grew up very poor and working class. So I didn't have like, my parents weren't like shuttling me to, uh, you know, a play and buying me museum tickets to research. I, I did this on my own. And it was like, I was motivated because I loved, you know, Mrs. Halsey. 
I said, well, and I didn't want to get spanked, but I also didn't want to, <laughs> let, um, <laughs> I didn't want to let her down. So those are the types of experiences. So if we're looking like in this current situation, there are so many relevant assignments we could do, like asking kids to say, you know, how is the spread of this virus um, being helped or hindered in your community? Like explore it and let's get some tools together. There's no, there's nothing saying a kid has to be in a classroom watching something on a projector. They could be going to the local Dollar General and saying, okay, I was at Dollar General and I sat there for 10 minutes and eight out of 10 customers had no mask. Um, the employee only put their mask on when the customer had their mask on. You know what I mean? There are so many rich experiences like that. It does not involve um, memorization, but it is so much more meaningful. And if you can find ways, which teachers do every day, find ways to bring in those uh, core subjects into it. Like, so what percentage of parents, uh, customers were wearing masks? Eh, looks like 40%. Oh, oh my God, we're teaching math. But we didn't tell them like right. there's 12 math problems convert to a percent. Right. That to me is the dream school. Like where you could basically, I mean, it kind of sounds Montessori, but I'm not, I'm not uh, opposed to that. I think public education is the way to go. And I think public education is needed to get everybody up to this level, but public education needs to become more relevant. Uh, right. We've got to stop this whole um, getting work done. Yeah the curriculum you know we've got kids that don't do assignments well how do you know they haven't mastered it you know what I mean right because they haven't checked in on Google classroom does that mean that they're not learning no they may be learning they may be learning something far more meaningful than what was posted on Google classroom let um, me ask you um, uh, YouTube, about oh I was just gonna say have you seen that YouTube video numb by Liv McNeil yes Wow. Yeah. yeah. Like I cried when I saw that. Yeah. Yeah. It reminded, it reminded me of my daughter, like stuck in her room that whole time. Exactly. Every my youngest too. Just like right at that age, like between eighth grade and high school and just like watching that. And, and she went through all those outfits every day. Yeah. The only difference is I think my daughter had on the same outfit. Same outfit. <laughs> I was too busy. I, I pushed like, him in the shower every once in a while. Yeah. 930 at night. I said, Annabelle, did you check in on Google Classroom? She's like, you didn't remind me. <laughs> well, talk a little bit about um, another kind of, you know, antiquated uh, aspect of education, which is testing and assessment. Yeah. Uh, all those things were pretty much eliminated in the spring. Um, I was just speaking to uh, an executive over at Edmentum. Uh, Jamie Candy, who was saying, you know, it's going to be essential to have some sort of diagnostic assessment here at the beginning. Um, but how you track that going forward, formative, is, is, is all kind of up in the air. How, how, how are you looking at um, the aspects of testing and assessment and, and learning loss and whether we should call it learning loss or learning maintenance or, or what is it? I, I think there was maintenance. I think there was a slide and I think there was a huge slide. And uh, not surprisingly, I don't have the empirical data to back this up, but I would say, you know, kids doing well with good support at home, nice situation, good access to internet, they probably maintained or had minimal loss. The kids that are normally being 
you know, the extra resources are being pumped into just to get the equity up to where you're at least on a level playing field with every other kid, all those supports went away overnight. So I bet those were massive learning losses. Um, and uh, see, I'm glad you brought this up because I feel so strongly about this because uh, a, a, if, if there's any kind of an assessment, there has to be accountability with assessing, right? But I'm sorry, a minimum level of standards is not that. That is not, and it's standardized. I mean, even the word standardized, and like everybody's saying 21st century, we need to personalize our learning. So why do you personalize your learning and then standardize your assessment, right? Shouldn't it be personalized learning with a personalized assessment? Uh, I think the key there is what you said, diagnostic and formative. If it's not diagnostic and formative, then it is not true learning assessment. These tests where you give them in May at the end of the year, and then you get the results back when the kids left your class. I mean, I would even argue too, um, these are my beliefs too on, on high school final exams. What is the point of an exam on the very last day you're gonna see a kid? So what, you know that they did not master it, but what are you gonna do differently? Nothing, you're gonna, they, they go on. And so then you say, well, we're preparing for the real world. Well, what kids are gonna need to be prepared to take final exams? The college bound, right? And most schools like ours had a process in place where if you had great attendance, good grades, you were exempt from final exams. Hmm. It just seems logical, right? Right. Understand where it came from. So, but now you look at this out. Who are you now exempting from final exams? The college bound. Right. The ones that need, because there's no research that supports a long summative exam does anything to increase retention. No research exists that says final exams increase learning and retention at all. And now you don't have the measurement of SAT or ACT either. Yeah, and <laughs> we've just done it because it's always been that way. Yeah. Um, you know, and we had talked about getting rid of finals, and I mean, we had teachers that were like, I spent all weekend writing this final. Like, well, um, give it next year. I mean, no, no, no labor lost there, but um, it, it's very hard to break those chains. Um, and the only kids then that uh, don't have necessarily the best grades or have uh, spotty attendance, they're the ones that we're now we're subjecting to this final exam process that we've all admitted they're not going to need. Yeah. Because we're preparing them for the real world. If they're not going to college, they're not going to need final exams. Right. Right. Have you been exploring the idea of certification programs or other sort of uh, career pathway stuff? Yeah. So we have, we, at our high school, we have, uh, this is the first year, assuming we can get this thing going. We actually have uh, apprenticeships now for the first time where we have uh, paired kids up with um, local businesses. Now we don't have a ton, but like we've got uh, a kid that's going to be a junior, for example, um, uh, very bright kid, very, uh, what's the nice way to say this, uh, needy, like teachers like, oh, he drives me crazy. He drives me crazy because he can't focus. He's, he just schoolwork has not mattered to him. But we have him lined up now to where he's doing an apprenticeship at a, at a John Deere dealer. And he's going to graduate our high school with a diploma and a service technician associate. Uh, he will be, and if he goes to college, great. What harm has been done? The fact that the guy knows how to maintain and fix mechanical issues. If you're going to go be a first year teacher, wouldn't it have been nice to be able to, to moonlight on the side to fix cars for friends for cash? Absolutely. Yeah. And nothing else. You learned some valuable, uh, valuable skills that you didn't learn in school, like um, how to get along with people outside of Bunker Hill, 
um, you know, diversity in the workplace. You get to work with all types. You have to work for a boss that may be great, that you don't want to let down and disappoint, or you may work with the boss that you truly have no respect for, but you just realize, hey, I'm going to toe the line, keep my head down, do my job. And kids would learn quickly how much uh, a culture permeates a, a place. Those are, the, those are the rich learning experiences we should be doing. And you can't measure that on a test score. Yeah. I, I will say this, like uh, my daughter had a phenomenal third grade teacher and my daughter's going into fifth grade and she still talks about that teacher. We were going to go to Arizona to visit friends this summer. Obviously we didn't because of the coronavirus. But the first thing she said was when we're there, we need to send pictures to Mrs. Gokul. And we're like, come on, you've had this teacher. That was two years ago. Like, Let her go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> has that connection uh and i don't know what it is it's that x factor but i can guarantee you annabelle at the age of 20 will not come back to to don gokul give her a hug and say thank you so much for raising my park score yeah no <laughs> that was the year my park score my park score shot through the roof that year and i thank you no she's gonna hug <laughs> like you really made a difference because um i would do anything for you yeah you yeah. don't that with a test score yeah it's a relationship to measure this stuff yeah yeah we do but we don't do it with a standardized assessment right standard right. it has to be formative and it has to be multifaceted i would love to be able uh in my spare time to sit down and create some type of an assessment like where you actually say yeah you can meet the, a small weight on minimum standards uh a, a medium weight on like okay did you overcome some resilience uh or trauma this year did you overcome that if you did, yeah, that's huge. That is huge. You overcame trauma. That is massive. That is the number one indicator of what you can be successful in life about. It is not um, SAT scores or anything like that. That's huge. If you, can, if you can overcome resilience, so then you should get marks for that. You should get marks for the fact that I felt happy and safe at school. You should get marks for saying, I love learning. Learning was interesting to me. If we wanna keep uh, teacher accountability, ask the kids. You know, I'm not saying a kid would evaluate a teacher like, oh, they need to be fired. Uh, you know, what I mean, I'm, that's not yeah. too radical where teachers would or students, you know, you don't want nine year olds determining the future career of uh, <laughs> adults. But uh, I think a nine year old could possibly be like, you know what? I was uh, it was boring. Yeah. Well, that's that's helpful. Well, so in, uh, it, as, as I desperately try to. Uh, think glass half full <laughs> yeah. with, 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 with all of this stuff. I mean, all of these, all of these concepts uh, that, that, that we're talking about here, and look, we're only five months into something that might extend for a year possibly too. Um, do you see this as a moment where these sort of things might actually occur? Um, I, I feel like it could and it should, but I don't know if it will. Um, I am a half glass full person too. Um, I've got various feelings about reopening this school year, but I do know one thing, teaching is hard on a normal year. And uh, this year is gonna be no different. It's gonna be harder. Uh, I believe in our teachers, they can do this. And I do believe public education, if done right, can emerge from this pandemic as the superhero. If we play our cards right. Uh, if we do remote learning and kids aren't getting checked on and there's no learning happening, and then they come back and, and states want to give this uh, punitive summative assessment of standardized tests. What are we going to see with that? Honestly, what are we going to see with that? 
all you're going to do is shame the districts that have high need kids and then people are going to say those teachers are failures and they're not you had kids that required this much resources just to keep up with their peers and we took them all the way i mean even if we did some kind of support it wasn't equal right and so what's that standardized test going to do that is not accountability that is public shaming and when we know if we've been in education how how effective is that motivating a kid? You know, I mean, I wouldn't be motivated very well by public shaming. No. I'd keep my head down. I would do my job and I would avoid it, but I would not, I would not be motivated to excel. Yeah. Well, so where are you guys right now? Are you, are you um, in person or are you hybrid or, or remote? We're or in person with small cohorts, and we also have uh, a free choice to do remote. Yeah. Okay. I think, um, you know, some of that depends on your community. And in Southern Illinois, we have coal miners, oil refinery workers. I mean, these people are tough. They go to work with, with lung cancer. I mean, you know, <laughs> I mean it, they, so you have to know your community a bit. And I will say, too, like, they're all essential. So, um, what do we do if we did 100% remote? Do I think we're going to be 100% remote this year? Yeah, we do. Uh, but right now, uh, but it could change tomorrow because it could change today because our governor is giving a press conference again today and Fridays are his education day. So who knows? Um, but I do think the value of being in person, it cannot be replaced. And I'm not saying we're going to do this and disregard the, the health We've, we've got so many layers in place to where it's probably 80% safer than, than nothing. You know what I mean? Yep. So is it a guarantee like anybody could put their kid on a bus and be like, okay, I'm 100% guaranteed my kid won't catch COVID at school. No, you're not. But it's 89% less likely because right. of all our strict measures. Right. You're following the protocols. Yeah. And that's in, in, the, in the best due diligence that you can and then you know power through right yep and if you personally have a kid with health issues my goodness don't send them it's not worth it like right you won't be penalized no no not at all in fact it's like you don't do it i wouldn't do it like um i mean we love our kids and like uh learning loss is bad but man uh keeping your kid alive is way more important uh, yeah. so if you have the the health concerns we've said or if there's somebody in your family my goodness, we're not requiring doctor's notes and all that. Some schools around us are, are requiring a doctor's note. And I, I think that was, we're not doing that. It's like, if, if you don't feel safe, then choose remote. Yeah, yeah. Well, Todd, thank you so much for your time. Uh, well, we hit a lot of points there. I know, you got me going. I appreciate <laughs> this. This was good. And it was nice to see you again. And nice to see you, man. Yeah, uh, I'm gonna, I meant you. that well when I said that about not letting you down because I respect you so much. <laughs> Thank you very much. And I can't wait to uh, see you again in person. I know. I mean, it, it it will virtual. Happen. Yeah, it, virtual is nice 